What I wanted to talk about right now are a couple of what we'd call early reform movements because the reform, by the time we get to Martin Luther, remember the few dates I put last time, Martin Luther 1517, that before we get to Martin Luther, that some places the reform of the church has already started. And not only already started, but is already in like full swing and really successful. And the places where that has happened, that Protestantism is never going to be a thing. So in particular, Spain. There's a reason why Protestantism never takes root in Spain whatsoever. There's no group of Spanish Protestants that I couldn't even name. Um, is because the reform had already taken place there. And which I'll get to in a second. Um, but even the rest of the church, there was still a recognition that reform needed to happen. And actually, five years before Martin Luther and his 95 Thesis, there was an ecumenical council, oops, that's supposed to be a five, 1512, the, called the Fifth Lateran Council, which was supposed to be a reforming council, what the Council of Trent's going to be later on, but they just didn't quite get enough together to actually get enough done. But there was a very famous speech there by one of the council fathers, that's what you call one of the people running the council and speaking, a guy named Giles of Viterbo. who gave a very famous address about the need for reform in the church. And he made a couple of key points. Um, he f talked, actually taking off of the Song of Songs, he talked about how the church being the bride, but is actually, he says, not in spring, not in flowering, but is in winter. Um, and how that, the, 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 that they need to do everything they can to prune back, recover, so that the spring can come once again. Which was funny, when I was reading that, it did, it made me think of um, John Paul II used this exact same language. But being John Paul II, who was very much a prophet of hope, he didn't say that the church was in the winter, he said, a new spring is around the corner. Which is the exact same thing. Um, think about it, it means where are we currently in winter. Um, but that the spring, it's coming soon. Um, but Giles made a second key point, which is sort of the anti-Luther point, in that he had a famous quote where he said that men must be changed by religion, not religion changed by men. Um, and, however, they didn't entirely take his words to heed. Um, and so, the place, though, where they did was in Spain. So the key figure in Spain is one man, and how you spell it is up to you. And that is Cardinal Jimenez, sometimes spelled with an X, sometimes spelled with a J. So I don't know which is the correct spelling because I've seen it both ways a million times. Cardinal Jimenez de Cisneros. Um, and so anyway, Spain at this time, this is the era of Ferdinand and Isabel. So think of um, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Um, they're the ones that sent him. The 14, into the 1400s, you've got Ferdinand and Isabella, who famously united Spain actually into a united country for the first time ever. Um, and they were very devout Catholics. And Isabella is actually given the title Servant of God by the Catholic Church. Um, and so anyway, she was deeply concerned with the state of the church in Spain. And there was a guy named Jimenez, who had had a bit of trials in his priestly life, that he was an ordinary parish priest, and then he, he met the Pope, and the Pope really liked him, and the Pope actually promised him early on, like, hey, next open 
episcopate in Spain, next open bishopric, you are going to be appointed bishop. And so he was a little bit of a climber, like a lot of people were at the time. So the, an opening came open. He put forth his name and said, hey, the Pope said I get to be the next bishop. But it turns out that the head bishop of a country, which you call the primate, which not every country really has a primate, but some of the European countries, they have a head, basically a first amongst equals bishop. Um, so for instance, um, the, like every, I mean, every country in Europe basically does this. Um, Poland, I think it's Warsaw is the primate. Um, you, but in Spain, it's Toledo. Um, Toledo, however you want to pronounce it. Holy Toledo um, is where the, the primate of Spain was. And he was a pretty corrupt fellow. And so he said, no, you, you're not going to get it. I'm going to give it to one of my buddies. And so... Cardinal Jimenez threw a little bit of a fit, and so what did the Archbishop of Toledo do? He threw him in prison. So he's not Cardinal Jimenez at the time, he's just Father Jimenez. So Father Jimenez spent five years in prison. And so five years in prison, he got to reevaluate his life a little bit, his ambitions. And so as soon as he got out, he actually left the diocese and became a Franciscan monk. Um, and anyway, he became a very humble and holy Franciscan monk. And as it turned out, the next Archbishop of Toledo, who was not a corrupt man and was a good friend of Queen Isabella, that he actually recommended um, Friar Jimenez to be her confessor. So he became her confessor. And he's a very holy man. And she started thinking, like, this is the guy we need in charge of the Church of Spain. So she knew that he, um, and actually the current archbishop, thought he would be a good successor too. But they knew that if they asked him to do it, he was going to say no. So first thing they did was she actually wrote a letter to the Pope asking him to be appointed Archbishop of Toledo. And so she, he got, she got the letter, and she called Cardinal, or Father Padre, um, Friar Jimenez brought him in and said, hey, can you read this letter for me that just came um, from the Pope? And he started reading through it. And as soon as he got to the part about himself, he actually dropped the letter and just ran out the door. And he, then he ran out of the castle, and they, she had to send her guards on horseback to go and bring him back. Um, and then he refused to take the job. So she had to write the Pope again, um, asking him to demand that he accept the position as Archbishop of Toledo, which he did. Um, because you're not going to be a good friar if you don't follow the Pope's direct orders. So anyway, he was made Archbishop of Toledo. And he systematically went around trying to reform the church in Spain. So the big things that he did, that the first thing he did, actually, I mean, he does sort of three things at the same time. So when I say first, I mean this first in the list, not in order of them happening. Um, was one is he started a university, um, the University of Alcala. Um, I don't know entirely. A C A L, I think A. There might be a U on the end. Um, the, the University of Alcala, and part of this was remember when we talked about last week that there was no seminary system for priests; that they would go and sort of uh, be tutored under the other priest. And if he was good, they might get a good education. If he wasn't, they're not really going to. 
So he wanted uh, basically a systematic theological university, and he went and got professors from all over Europe, from the University of Paris, from everywhere, so he could staff it with the best professors they could have so that the priests could all become educated and actually know what they were talking about. So that was one thing that had huge effect. And basically anybody, priest that's anybody, every saint that's going to come during this period from Spain, they're all going to study there. Um, two was he used the printing press to great effect. And one of the things that he did was he had produced a new Bible. And so he actually did, it was a polyglot Bible where he had on sort of on different, on the same page in the Old Testament you had Actually, you had all three versions. You had the Hebrew, the Latin Vulgate, and the Greek Septuagint all right next to each other. And so the priests that were all being educated in all these, so they knew all three languages. They could, I mean, they could even compare the languages. They could, and they became biblical experts. And he printed these on the printing press and sent them all over Spain. So you had educated priests that knew the scripture and knew it through and through. Um, and then, on top of that, with the printing press, he also started basically um, the Ignatius books of their day, um, where they would sort of print every type of spiritual classic they could think of, um, lives of saints, and they started printing them on the printing press and selling, sending them everywhere. And the, which is going to be really important later on, because there's going to be the soldier um, who in battle gets his leg hit with a cannonball and he's stuck recuperating um, Ignatius of Loyola and he's got nothing to do. All it's there to do is read um, Cardinal Jimenez's spiritual classics that he's had printed that are going to con convert the heart of Ignatius of Loyola. So, they, so he also did that. Um, and uh, if you notice I'm going really fast because Tony asked for extra time. Um, and then the... The third big thing he did was basically try to stamp on the corruption of the priests within their daily living. And so, as in every time priest that the church being made, or every time period, the church being made up of men and um, ordinary men and priests being who they are, you had a lot of priests that had concubines um, throughout Spain. And so he started the requirement that you had to live in your parish, you had to go to weekly confession if you were a priest, and you had to preach every single Sunday. And it was amazing how, and you had to give up a concubine if you had one. And it was amazing how much this perturbed a lot of people, so much so that four, over 400 different Franciscans fled Spain to North Africa and became Muslims so that they could keep, keep their concubines. Um, so... I was going to say, reform doesn't make you popular. Um, and anyway, but you add all these effects, effects together, um, and what you end up having within Spain is this deep religious revival that takes root um, before the Reformation. This is the end of the 1400s. So, like I said, that when the reform, it, when the Reformation hits France, the eldest daughter of the church, it's not going to entirely topple France, but there's going to be a lot of, um, a lot, they're going to have a whole entire civil war over it. Um, you have the French Huguenots, a huge group of Calvinists within France. Even Italy, you're going to have pockets of Protestants, etc. But Spain, is going to, the Reformation is going to stop at the Pyrenees. 
um, and not going to get anywhere because the priests were ready to engage the ideas. The people were devout. They were actually receiving the sacraments, confessions being offered, um, the mass being said regularly. Um, and so it's an entirely different picture. Um, and that's why when you read the story, history of the Reformation, etc., that are written from Anglo-American perspective that are definitely from a Protestant perspective, they never talk about Spain. Um, they like to conveniently ignore the fact that Spain is never even tempted by Protestantism. And it also flies in the face of there's the great Protestant myth that is um, prevalent to this day that if that Martin Luther was the first person to give the Bible to people and the ordinary people. And that as soon as people learn the scriptures, they, of course, realize that the Catholic Church is not biblical and abandoned the Catholic Church and became Protestant. Which, the, actually, the exact opposite is true. That it was the places like Spain that had widespread printed Bibles that people knew, where people knew the scriptures the best, that they are not even tempted. Um, I mean, there might have been a few persons here and there. But, in wide, there's not even this, no widespread movement to become Protestant. Um, but anyway, it's a great... Spain's just a great example of showing, like, okay, Martin Luther's, the Reformation's going to spur reform within the church, but it wasn't necessary for reform within the Catholic Church. So just because God takes evil things, some um, schism within the church is always an evil thing. Um, that God, as I mean, it says in the scriptures, he intends us to be one. He didn't say, say, well, you should have, like, this church over here, this church over here. No, he founded one church. So schism, breaking apart is always an evil thing. And so God, of course, uses that, as with all evil things, for great good. So he's going to use the Reformation to accomplish great good within the Catholic Church. But it's important also to remember, though, that the evil wasn't necessary for the good to happen. Um, it's hap the good happens despite the evil. Um, because I think there can be a tendency at times, Catholics, looking back at the Reformation, well, at least maybe it's good that it happened because it spurred the Catholics on to reform. But no, it would have happened anyway. And all it takes reform is it takes the Holy Spirit and it takes Christ. Um, he doesn't really need us to do bad things in order for, to make it happen. All right. I kept it short for Tony. Well, good morning. I uh, apologize for not being here last week. I was indisposed, but... Uh... first thing you have to do in a class like this is correct misconceptions really because uh, because history particularly popular history is uh, written by the victors and since uh, since most history that we read is uh, is basically English history because of our English heritage and since England separated from the church and, and then spread Protestantism uh, all around the world. We, the history that, that, that we read tends to be written from a Protestant or even a secular perspective. So you don't really get uh, the, the full picture. You sort of get a distorted view, particularly, particularly about the Reformation and the, and the quote, counter-Reformation. And actually, actually, the, ver the very word ref "reformation" uh, requires uh, requires some uh, some clarification because to to reform something 
simply means to uh, return it to its uh, pure or, or a purer state, to remove excrescences or things that have that have uh, grown up over the years, get rid of corruption, and return it to its to its uh, to its pure form. Which is not at all what the Protestant Reformation did. So in many sense, Protestant Reformation was not a reformation. It was a deformation. It was a revolution. The goal was not to reform the church, was was to destroy uh, the entire edifice, the entire structure of, of the Catholic Church and to replace it with something else. So it was a true it was a true revolution. And the true reformation that took place in the 16th century was the Catholic Reformation. So I don't even like to call it a counter-reformation. Because again, that's written from a, a false, false perspective. It's not a, it is the reformation. It's not a, not a counter-reformation. It is the reformation of the 16th century. And like T.J. said, it, it began... Uh, much earlier, beginning in the 13th and the 14th and the 15th centuries with all the great saints. The church was always being reformed. The old Latin phrase, ecclesia semper ecclesia reformanda, the church is always being reformed. Great saints are, are being born. Francis, Dominic, and the 13th century uh, Spanish reformers. There, there was reform going on constantly what the what the ref, what the protestant reformation was really was an attack on rome i mean there there were other abuses but but it was it was primarily an attack on rome on the 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 authority the roman authority of, of the church it's attack on the popes from the very beginning, if you go back and read Luther, it, was, it, it, it wasn't so much theological, maybe a little bit in Luther's case, there were some obviously psychological and theological issues, but, but, but even at the very beginning, it was an attack on the power and the authority and the worldliness of Rome. Uh, there's a famous, uh, what, 15 something, 1510 or something, when Luther and Erasmus, the other great Dutch reformer, came to Rome about the same time, and Luther was scandalized, appalled, appalled, just scandalized at what he saw in Rome. And Erasmus was exhilarated, <laughs> said this is the greatest thing that's ever been. This is the height of civilization. Because, it, because, uh, because the other words you have to keep in mind with the Catholic Reformation is the Renaissance. Because what was happening in the 15th and 16th centuries was the Renaissance. Now, according to the, the wrong view of history, the Renaissance came along after a thousand years of darkness and superstition and religion and opened everybody's mind to light and reason. And the Protestant Reformation came along and did the same thing and we all marched into a world of reason and, and peace and harmony and dispensed with superstition, which is total nonsense. 
the Renaissance was in most ways a Catholic Renaissance. It was a Renaissance in the church, through the church. You talk about the Renaissance, the Renaissance, as our British friends say? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Anybody, have you, anybody been to Florence? No, Joe's been everywhere. John's been everywhere. Anyway, I had to show that because uh, that's, uh, that's Giotto's bell tower, 14th century. That's the great Duomo with Brunelleschi's dome, 15th century. One of the most extraordinary events in the history of the human race is what happened in Florence in, in the 15th century, in which the Renaissance essentially began in one place, in one, one Italian city-state. And what we, what we think of as a great explosion of learning and art and civilization in the Renaissance, all 99% began right there in one, one small Italian city-state. This is an extraordinary, extraordinary event. And what the Renaissance, the Renaissance was, was a, simply a rediscovery or, or, or a rediscovery of learning and manuscripts and uh, art and sculpture that had, in many ways, a lain dormant for, in some cases, almost a thousand years. So, men began to discover, uh, to rediscover the, the glories of classical culture, Greek and Roman. Uh, and that had been preserved through the church. Because what happened was uh, there, there, there began almost, an, almost a, a frenzy of, uh, of scholars, m mainly churchmen, mainly clerics, roaming around Europe rediscovering old Latin and Greek manuscripts that had lain in monasteries where they'd been preserved by the church, that had been preserved for, for hundreds or maybe even a thousand years since the fall of the Roman Empire. When you think about the Renaissance, you think of Michelangelo, Raphael, Bramante, Brunelleschi, Brian Jellicoe, who else? They're all Florentines. They all came from Florence. And what happened in the 15th century was sort of the migration of the Renaissance from Florence to Rome. And some of the most... Uh, Fascinating popes to the, uh, of the church, in, in my mind, were some of the some of the 15th century Renaissance popes, who uh, who many of them had a Florentine connection, came from Florence, or were educated in Florence, were were quote humanist popes. Now, the word humanism uh, requires definition too, because we think of humanism in modern terms as secular humanism. The great humanism of the Renaissance was Christian humanism. There, there, was no, there was no essential conflict between, between um, 
the glories of culture and, and God's world, God's word in Christianity. So, so the Renaissance was a Catholic, Catholic Renaissance. Uh, Christianity is a worldly religion. Is that right? Catholicism is a worldly religion. And one of the great attacks of, of Luther on the church was the, it was worldly. It was worldliness. See, if, if there was a theological underpinning of the Reformation, it was the attack on, on worldliness. We need to purify the church of worldliness. Which runs counter to Christianity itself. Right? Because God became a man, a person. The entire bedrock of Christianity is the incarnation. God became man. This it struck me uh, the other Sunday in the bulletin. Father Nimi always puts these neat little pictures in the bulletin. This one was a this one is a was a medieval uh, drawing of Christ healing the leper. And it was very graphic, which was typical in the Middle Ages. Very, they weren't very squeamish in the Middle Ages. Very graphic. And what Christ does is reach down and touch the guy. He gets his hands all over him, all those sores and all those running leprosy and stuff. He gets involved. It's a very worldly picture. But there's always been a puritanical tendency in, in Christianity, even, even in elements in the church. It's always been a puritanical tendency to purify the church of all this worldly stuff to make it more esoteric make it more quote spiritual make it more mystical and, and, and in some ways that, that's that's necessary but, it, but if, if taken too far it, it's almost an attempt to strip Christianity of its uh, human element because one of the recurrent, recurrent heresies all through the church and it's very much part of the Protestant Reformation, was the Donatist heresy that only good, pure priests, only good, pure people could administer the sacraments. They need to purify the church of bad people. It's need to purify the faith of sinners. And the problem with that is there ain't any of us left. <laughs> There's nobody left. You tend to wipe out the whole thing. So there's always that tension between, uh, between the worldliness of the church, when in some, in some ways it's a good thing because we live in the world and we minister in the world and we take the sacraments in the world. And Catholicism is religion of stuff. And nowhere was that more obvious than in Rome in, in the 16th century, beginning in the 15th century, when... when uh, when the Renaissance moved to Rome. And it, it, you have to understand um, what a terrible condition Rome was in in the middle of the 15th century. Uh, there, was, there were maybe 30,000 people there, small town, smaller than almost any of the great city-states, smaller than Florence, smaller than uh, Venice, Siena, Pisa, smaller than any of those cities. Basically a wreck. The great aqueducts have been smashed hundreds of years before uh, people lived in 
malarial-infested uh, swamps, basically, along the Tiber. Uh, the buildings were in ruin. The forum we see was under 40 feet of, of a cow pasture. It was called the uh, Campo Vacuum uh, uh, Cow Pasture. Uh, the, uh, the popes were at the, at the Vatican. The church, there was... Uh, Rome was a poor, dangerous, dirty, pestilential place in the middle of the 14th century. By the middle 15th, by the middle of the 16th century, Rome was the glory of the world. In a hundred years, Rome became the golden age of, of the Renaissance, primarily through the popes who rebuilt Rome. So when you think about the Renaissance popes and the, the, the kind of excess that Luther reacted to, uh, it's important to put, to put, put that in perspective. The popes, uh, the popes in the 15th and 16th century were, were not, only, not only the fathers of the church, but temporal rulers. Were, were, were secular princes with courts and armies who ruled the papal states. So one of the, one of the uh, and, and remember the popes had just returned to Rome from the French system. So one of their objectives was safety, was to, uh, because this was not a, uh, you, could, you could think of these Italian families as, cultured mafiosi, basically, in, the, in this 15th century. They were always at each other's throats, the great, the great Roman families, warring Orsinis and the Colonnas and the Frangipangis and the Farnesis, hundreds and hundreds of year old senatorial families been warring in each other. For, and then the great city-states who were always warring, Florence against Siena, Florence against Pisa, Venice against Florence, Mantua against Milan, constant small warfare among Italy. So the popes, in, in, in one sense, the first objective was to stay alive, was to stay in Rome and, and, and at least maintain some safety there. It was not a, uh, a uh, settled place. The other objective was to rebuild Rome. So the other thing that some of the great Renaissance popes did was undertake massive building projects, restoring the aqueducts, widening the streets, cleaning the streets, rebuilding the ruined buildings, building these magnificent churches and, uh, and buildings that we see in Rome today. Rome today is essentially a creation of the Renaissance popes. So. And the way they did that, in many ways, was to bring to Rome this extraordinary explosion of genius that had begun in Florence. So when you think of when you think of St. Peter's, when you think of Michelangelo's great edifice begun by Bramante, continued by Sangallo and Raphael, finished by Michelangelo, when you go to St. Peter's today, San Pietro. Uh, was a creation of the great Renaissance popes. Julius II, uh, Leo X. Uh, who was it? Uh, Will Durant, who's not even a, not even a believer, who says we, uh, 
St. Peter's it, uh, might be worth a lot of uh, Martin Luther. <laughs> Maybe if you see. I don't know if that's true or not. This is what I had a quote from uh, a, um, a historian. From the middle of the 15th century to the middle of the 17th, these, uh, the, uh, the quote, Renaissance popes seem to have brought towering geniuses to Rome. Raphael, Michelangelo, Bernini, Caravaggio. They also had Signorella, Perugio, Pinturicchio, Pietro de Corona, Bramante, Borromini, endless, endless list of geniuses. Countless other artists, architects, engineers, city planners of awe-inspiring superlative talent. They turned Rome into a city of incomparable artistic treasure. Though the lurid aspect of the papacy has been exaggerated, I think TJ mentioned some of those exaggerations, it's almost impossible to exaggerate the achievement, the cultural achievement of Rome during the Renaissance. The Counter-Reformation. And there is a connection between the two. Harry Crocker, another uh, a Catholic historian, wrote an, an interesting piece, I thought, about the Renaissance. What was most at stake was freedom. The Catholic Church was freedom's defender, not merely by defending Europe against the Turks, it was the church that nurtured the artistic freedom of the Renaissance. It was the Protestants who smashed religious art as idolatry and centralism. It was the church that sponsored the literary freedom of the humanist and the Protestants who condemned the Renaissance as paganism. It was the church that affirmed man's free will and the Protestants who insisted that every man's fate was determined before he was born. Most of all, it was the Catholic Church that stood opposed to the absolute power of the state. It was the church that claimed to be universal, independent, superior court of appeals, while the Protestants made religion a department of government to be controlled by princes, kings, or city councils. So I wanted to, I wanted to try to make clear that really critical connection between the Renaissance and the Catholic Reformation. Because the worldliness of, of Rome has scandalized Luther. Uh, and it was a worldly city. <laughs> it was, but the, well, what else was happening in Rome was, was uh, immense wealth flowing into the city from annates and tithes and, and and, and uh, so anytime you have a, a immense wealth, you're going to have immense temptation and a lot of other people flowing into wrong. So it was a worldly, in some sense, a worldly and a glorious uh, city. If you go to, um, how many people have been to Rome? Yeah, yeah. We all need to go to Rome. Um, if you go to Rome, if you, if you go to St. Peter's and, and see that, that towering 
edifice, or even if you go, even if you go, if you go and look at, at, at Michelangelo, you go see the Pieta, an early, early work of Michelangelo. If you go over to San Pietro Vincoli, the little church over there by the Colosseum, and see the late, one of the, the late work, the Moses, which was supposed to be the tomb of Julius, uh, which he never finished, but uh, you've been to, have you seen the, the great Moses statue, one with the horns, <laughs> looks like horns, <laughs> but, uh, but I think you see, you see in Michelangelo this tension between uh, uh, the spiritual devotion and, and, and this uh, embrace of the world too, of worldliness. Because remember what, what, what a sculpture does, what Michelangelo, and what he always said was that he basically discovers uh, form in matter, in, in creation. He always said, I don't create a sculpture, I, I uncover it from the marble. It's in there, and I, I uncover it. So in a sense, that's sort of a metaphor of, uh, of what we're talking about here, this, this fact that God uh, resides in us, in matter, in people, in things, in, in the world, not, not only uh, off somewhere in a... Um, Celestial Palace, but in in the real world, you can see it in the great Renaissance artists, particularly Michelangelo, who's uh, if you go to the Sistine Chapel, which has just been cleaned. Apparently, I haven't seen it since it was since it was cleaned. But you go to Sistine Chapel and you see this explosion of uh, forms, naked people all over the ceiling there, <laughs> like a hundred nudes all over the Sistine Chapel which scandalizes Protestants to this day sometimes. What, what? There were Puritan elements in the church that wanted to cover up some of Michelangelo's paint loincloths around them. But there was nobody more devout than Michelangelo who was utterly devoted to, to God, to his art, to the, to the church, even though he fought tooth and nail with, with, with the, the great Pope Julius. But the idea was to express uh, spirituality, spiritual truth through the flesh, through the body. And that's a great tension in Christianity. Remember, God is man and God. Fully man and fully God. It, 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 that, that, that tension is... Uh, there's always a tendency to try to break that tension apart, to either become purely materialist say, well, God doesn't exist, it's all matter, or to say, well, matter doesn't mean anything, flesh doesn't mean anything, it's all spirit. None of those, neither of those, of course, is, is true. Both of those are a heresy, the oldest, oldest heresy of all, uh, splitting apart the, the, the uh, human and divine element of Christ. So, what I wanted to get across was some of the reaction to the worldliness of Rome that, that, that scandalized Luther was, was part of this puritanical streak, and some of it was justified. There was a lot of corruption and vice in Rome, as any wealthy, powerful city. 
but some of it was this puritanical streak to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. I want to mention just a couple of my favorite popes uh, during this great explosion of Renaissance in Rome. Uh, humanist popes, popes who were primarily educated in Florence. And the other thing to remember about Florence was the Medici. Cosimo de' Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent, the great Medici rulers, who again get a bad rap from Protestant historians. But, but uh, you think of the Medici as incredibly wealthy, uh, incredibly powerful, but also in incredibly um, supportive of art and learning and civilization. Uh, you wouldn't have anything like <laughs> like that today. You, I wouldn't, won't get into anything like that. But uh, Nicholas V middle of the 15th century. was a humanist pope, educated in Florence, under the Medici, uh, was so caught up in, in this rebirth of learning that literally, uh, literally supported thousands of translations of uh, Greek classics into Latin. Because remember this time, uh, these have been lost for a thousand years. Uh, Plato, for example, began to be translated into a Latin in the middle of the 15th century. Council of uh, Florence in 1439, it's something else you don't hear about. The Council of Florence in the middle of the 15th century essentially achieved the union of the Eastern and Western churches. At a Greek contingent from Constantinople came to Florence to, to a great church council and worked out all the differences. Resolved the differences, theological, and signed an accord of reunion to reunify the, uh, the, the, the Eastern Church, the Greek Church, the Orthodox Church, and the, and the Catholic Church. And when, all, when that big Greek contingent came to Florence, it sort of, sort of, in some ways, precipitated the Renaissance by returning uh, Greek culture, primarily Plato. Aristotle had been known, of course, but Plato much, much, much less so, and, and sort of spurred the translation of hundreds and hundreds of Greek text, Greek philosophy, great playwrights, the great, what we think of as classic Greek culture, again in the middle of the 15th century, in Florence at, at, a, at a church council. Of course, when the Greeks went back to Constantinople, they were all beat, beaten up, and <laughs> no, we don't, we're not, we're not doing any of that. And uh, the emperor rejected uh, the Eastern Emperor rejected the Union. But for a brief time there, in the middle of the 15th century, the two wings were one. For a brief time. Anyway, Nicholas V uh, moved to the Vatican, uh, sponsored. Thousands of translations began the rebuilding of Rome, began the papal library, had more Greek classic works translated during his papacy than had been translated in the previous 500 years, just in a little five-year period. Pius II 
So the great cardinals we think of of the Renaissance, many were not even priests. They were essentially what we would think of as princes, small kings with massive courts living in palaces. All this required a huge amount of money. So the way the popes raised money was to sell a cardinalate. You want to be a cardinal? Uh, and the reformers knew that in order to clean this up, we've got to stop the selling of ecclesial offices. Part of the problem with nepotism was the popes tended to be older when they became pope. They tended to have very short reigns, and they tended to surround themselves with family, nephews, cousins, uncles, and so forth, as, as a type of, type of protection. And all these people had to be taken care of with uh, palaces and, and courts and so forth. So from the very beginning, the very crux of reform, even, even the Council of Florence, Council of Basel, or the early reform council was, was uh, simony, cleaning up the selling of offices to, to somehow restore the, the church to... Uh, to a um, less extravagant, less extravagant. T.J. talked about Alexander the Sixth. I'm sure the great Borgia Pope, who uh, reputation was smeared primarily because he was uh, Spanish rather than Italian, <laughs> so the Italians hated him. Um, he did, of course, uh, bring Michelangelo. To Rome, uh, Julius II. If you saw the uh, the great film with uh, Charlton Heston uh, and uh, Rex Harrison, the Agony and the Ecstasy, the Michelangelo and and uh, Julius II about the Sistine Chapel. Julius II, of course, was the great warrior pope who was more comfortable in armor than he was in his robes. He basically led armies throughout Italy. And Leo X, I want to talk a little bit about Leo, but not maybe next time. We're running out of time. But he, Leo is the pope when the Reformation starts, when Luther, when Luther uh, begins to break apart the church. Leo is the uh, Leo X, the son of Lorenzo the Magnificat, the Magnificent, Lorenzo de' Medici, the Medici pope. It probably brought Rome to its height of Renaissance splendor. Someone said the courts of Augustus in Rome or Pericles in Athens could not rival the court of, of um, Leo in Rome in the middle of the 16th century. And then it all collapsed uh, for a lot of reasons. But we can talk about that collapse. That collapse next time. So, in a sense, it's a fascinating story of this building this glorious Renaissance edifice, and then watching it watching it collapse, watching it attacked by many by, by many forces, some good and uh, and some not. I want to talk about Reginald Pole next time, but I ran out of time. I got off on the Renaissance. I, want, I, I don't want to confuse 
confused thing, but I want, to try, well, I want to try to point out the connection between the Renaissance and the Catholic Reformation because you can't separate the two. Because a lot, of, a lot of the worldliness the Protestants reacted to was the worldliness of Raphael and Michelangelo and Bramante and Borromini and Ghiberti and Donatello and what we think of as the glories of Western civilization. Any questions about all that? Did I confuse everything? Does that, that make sense? So when you go to Rome, and you see all these monuments, and even the great, even, even you go to the Trevi Fountain, the great fountain, they're all produced by the popes because they opened up the aqueducts. They opened up the aqueducts, and water began to flow into Rome again. And when water flowed into Rome, the fountains were built. So all the great fountains will have a big plaque that will say, Sixtus the Fourth, P.M. Pontifex Maximus. This is the Pope that opened the aqueduct to, re to rebuild the fountain. So Rome is essentially the city of the Renaissance Popes. So we talk about Reginald Pole, one of my favorite people. Next time, Reginald Pole. What are we doing next time? <laughs> Trent. The beginning of Trent. Beginning of the Council of Trent. Any uh, questions? You mentioned Erasmus, Catholic. How did he end up? Was he pro-Catholic, anti-Catholic? Yeah, it's, actually, I meant to mention there's an article in the Wall Street Journal this Saturday contrasting Erasmus with Luther. Uh, I, I, I actually, I, I meant to bring that. Erasmus was a reformer who saw the worldliness of the church, wanted to reform it, but, uh, but remained in the church. The, probably the most learned man of his time. A contemporary with Luther. Communicated with Luther. And Thomas More, right. Much, much, uh, much uh, better educated than Luther, but, uh, but shared some of Luther's concerns about the worldliness, worldliness, secularism. Secularism in the church, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's very important when you see the word humanism, not not to confuse that with secular humanism. The humanism of the Renaissance, although although there were there were pagan elements in the Renaissance, but the humanism of the Renaissance was primarily a Christian humanism. These people weren't weren't. Uh, what we would think of as modern-day secularists, uh, Raphael, Michelangelo, Bramante, these were all Catholics. These were all Christians. So Christian humanism is, is in a sense, simply the, the, the view that man's fullest human nature is, is only realized in Christ, holding that human and divine together there. We'll all go to Rome. We'll go. We'll go. We'll go. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's do a, uh, I owe Mary uh, to conclude um, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. Now at the hour of our death. Amen.
Well, thank you. We'll see you next time. Talk about the Council of Trent. <laughs>